If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you're visiting us and you're using the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 1071. If you do not own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. There was a man named Sam Hinkey. 2013, he was hired to be the general manager for the NBA team, the Philadelphia 76ers. He embarked on this project to rebuild the 76ers because they were terrible. And as he began this rebuilding project, he would call it the process. He knew that this would be a long-term project. They wouldn't be successful overnight. And so he encouraged the fans and all the supporters to be patient and to trust the process. He was willing to endure short-term slumps for long-term success. He hired a head coach named Brett Brown, and y'all, they were terrible. They really were. But they began to hit in the lottery draft, began to get some good players, starting with the centerpiece of their team, Joel Embiid. And they, over the years, they began to improve. They continued to get more lottery picks and continue to get good players, and Joel Embiid would do interviews in the midst of them improving but not being that good, and he would continue to say, trust the process. As they got better, trust the process. They knew that their struggles weren't for naught. Eventually, they got the talent, the personnel, really good players to potentially make a title run. They thought that, man, this is our year. Well, unfortunately, they failed. They didn't reach their goal. They weren't able to produce the very end that they were hoping for. Sam ended up getting fired. They scrapped the process and started over. Wasn't a happy end to that story. Sorry about that. The reality is, human beings, we like to create processes for growth 
And sometimes the process fails, and other times the process succeeds. But we like to create them in hopes that it does succeed. That's the, that's the end that we're laboring towards. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because the reality is God also has a process for his people. When God, by his grace, saves a person, begin this process of sanctification. When the Lord begins to mold and shape us more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our hope. And we begin to grow in conformity to his character. This process is progressive for Christians. We also have an active role in that process as we pursue Christ's likeness through the ordinary means of grace. We are seeking to grow more and more in conformity to the likeness of Jesus. We want to pattern our lives after Christ. God, he is doing his sanctifying work in the process of sanctification, and it continues all the way up until either we die or Jesus Christ returns. And in this process of sanctification, God uses all things, all things, the good and the bad, the preached word, fellowship. He also used difficult things like being stuck in traffic, a difficult colleague, a noisy neighbor, sickness. Diagnosis. He uses it all to mold us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And in his text this morning, James, he unveils part of God's purposes in our trials. That God is using our trials to test our faith, to strengthen us in the faith, to have us grow more into maturity. Whereas Sam and Joel and B, they would say, trust the process. James would tell us to trust God who's over the sanctifying process because he will not fail. So our big idea for this passage is this. In trials, trust God's sovereign work and maturing purposes. In trials, trust God's sovereign work and maturing purposes. From our text, we have three exhortations on how we are to respond to trials. We rejoice. We remain faithful. And we remember God's purposes. Rejoice. Remain faithful and remember God's purposes. And so to give us a little bit of context about the book of James, since this is our first sermon in the book, well, the author is James, makes known in verse 1. He is the son of Mary and Joseph. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He was an apostle and a leader of the church in Jerusalem. James's name is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, and in the book of Galatians. 
This letter is one of the first letters written. His audience. His audience are churches. We see this in James chapter 5, verse 14. He says, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. That these congregations, they were primarily Jewish Christians. Though there were some Gentiles in those congregations. And these Jewish Christians, they were very familiar of James' Jewish writing as he refers to the synagogue. He uses many agricultural terms they'll be very familiar with, and he speaks of the law repetitively and positively. The aim for the book of James is for genuine faith to be demonstrated through faithful actions. Faith in action. As it's to be exhibited through our love, our care for the poor, compassion upon them, the pursuit of holiness, our obedience, our patience in the midst of suffering and in regards to our speech, that we honor the Lord. Beloved, the reality is James is not merely concerned with an articulate confession of the tenets of the faith. He assumed that for his audience. James is concerned about a faithful demonstration of your love for Jesus Christ that is exhibited in one's conduct and their obedience to the law of loving your neighbor and in imitating Christ. James hold tightly orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy being sound doctrine, orthopraxy being sound living. He holds these two together. And he makes known that our deeds are the fruit of our doctrine. And so it's inaccurate to assume or conclude that James is not concerned about faith. Because he is very concerned about faith. James and all the writers know that there is a correlating relationship between faith and works. That we are to bear good fruit, and that fruit stems from saving faith. This book is short, as it is five chapters, and it packs a punch. In five chapters, James gives over 50 imperatives giving commands, exhortations. Now, it's important for us to know that obeying these commands does not result in salvation. You don't do all this and then, therefore, you're saved. James is writing to fellow brothers and sisters. In fact, he says brothers and sisters multiple times throughout the letter. The relationship between salvation and obedience is this, that God saves us by his grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And our obedience is to be the result of being saved by grace. God in his grace, he has chosen us. Christ has purchased us. The spirit has sealed us. The law has been written on our hearts. And so in response to God's saving work, 
We are to obey our king. I have a heart of gratitude and a love for him. So this brings us to our first point in our passage. How are we to respond to our trials? Well, we are to rejoice. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, James, he identified himself as a slave. A slave of God. Meaning that his allegiance, his affections, and his obedience is given to God alone. That God is worthy of this. For God is the creator and ruler of all things. And in Christ, God is our adopted father. In an age when everyone wants to describe themselves as kings and masters, look how James describes himself. He's an apostle, but that's not how he described himself. A servant. A slave. And beloved, that's exactly who we are. We are servants and slaves of God. The reality is, in a spiritual sense, one is enslaved to something or someone. Before Christ saved us, we were enslaved to sin. It was and is a wicked taskmaster. We obeyed from our heart, and it only led to destruction. But when God saves us by his grace, he frees us from slavery to sin, and we're slaves to God, the greatest master there ever is and could be, the only one who is perfect and holy and always loving. Beloved, we are slaves of God, and so what that means is that we have absolutely no right to ever tell God no. And because God is the greatest master ever, because God is loving and holy and he is always for our good, to tell God no would be to our detriment. With us being servants of God, that means that we're not above a single task and we're not exempt from a single command. It is to be with joy that we get to serve the God who has called us and saved us and adopted us in Christ. It is to be with joy that we get to obey the one who has saved us by his grace. It is to be with joy that we get to be instruments in his hands proclaiming the gospel and serving one another for the glory of his name. James goes on to say that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here James shows off his Christology. He confessed Jesus to be the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the I am who I am as we read in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son who wrapped himself in human flesh. He is the promised Savior, the Son of David, the Messianic King, and the one who who is crucified for our sins. who was buried and three days later resurrected from the grave. James says that he is a slave of Jesus, and it is a privilege to be a slave of Christ. Because Christ is the king. 
Let me address the children in the room real quick. Children, you guys likely play with toys and action figures, and, and some of you want to be princesses or queens and kings. But I want you to know that as sweet and cute and fun as that is, there is a king, and he is the king of all kings, and his name is Jesus. And there's no other king greater than him. There's no other king who would die to save his people. Children, our prayer for you is that you will not just admit or acknowledge that Jesus is king, but that you would profess him to be your king, that you would trust in him, that you would follow him all your days, for there is no greater king than Jesus Christ. James, here he says that he is a servant of the Lord. And what's so amazing about this, this opening is who is the one who's talking? Who is the one who is writing? Because, y'all, this is the half-brother of Jesus. And here he emphasizes his spiritual relationship to Jesus. That Jesus is his, his king, his God, his Lord, and his Savior. And what's so amazing about this is if you read the Gospels, you will see that James didn't always confess Jesus to be Lord and Savior. In fact, James thought that Jesus was crazy out of his mind. In Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, it makes known that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. And yet here, by the grace of God, James confessed Jesus to be the Lord and Savior. By the grace of God, James went from being an opposer to an apostle of Jesus Christ. He went from being a hater to a helder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, let this give you hope as it pertains to your kinfolk who have yet to bow their knee to Jesus. Many of you have been praying and pleading and preaching the gospel, praying that the Lord would save your relatives was a sibling or a child or a cousin. You've been praying for a very long time and you haven't seen the Lord save them. Many of you may begin to be on the verge of hopelessness because that's been your constant prayer for so long and you haven't seen any fruit. Beloved, let James 1.1 encourage you to give you hope to continue to pray for the salvation of your kinfolk. Because James saw Jesus' life. James did life with Jesus. James may have heard the teaching of Jesus or at least heard about it, and yet he didn't believe at first, but God in his grace saved James. So may this give you hope to continue to bang on the doors of heaven pleading for God to save your relatives. May this embolden you, praying for the Spirit to give boldness to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he can't save. James goes on. We see his audience, he says, to the 12 tribes of the just. To the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. 
as I said, this audience, they are predominantly Jewish Christians. The phrase, the 12 tribes, should have us think about the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, the church is the covenant people of God. As Jesus Christ is the Son and the true Israel. In Christ, both believing Jews and Gentiles, we are the Israel of God. We are Abraham's children, and that includes us. He says they're dispersed abroad. This dispersion would have likely been an account of Jesus' name as the church in Jerusalem began to suffer persecution. And Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 11, verse 19 speaks to this. But it also applies to us because we're exiles. Paul would say in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is not on earth, but it is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So our citizenship is in God's coming kingdom as we await the new heavens and a new earth. And then James, he goes on to give a gracious greeting. And after that, he launches into exhortations. Look at verse 2. It says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. This is the first exhortation, and it focuses on our thinking, that we are to consider something a great joy. And what he exhorts us to consider a great joy is counterintuitive, because it ain't nothing like a vacation or a raise. What he tells us to consider great joy is when you experience various trials, various kinds of suffering, the things that we experience in this evil age because the world is fallen. He says the trials are various, variegated, trials of various kinds. There are so many, and the trials that we experience in this life are as diverse as the human population on earth. They range from poverty to persecution, oppression, disease, unemployment, infertility, being racially profiled to just to name a few. James lets us know that we are Christians, but we're not exempt from it. Notice he says, consider it a great joy. He doesn't say, if ever you experience various trials. He says, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. For Christians, trials are unavoidable. Jesus himself says in John chapter 16, in this life you will have trouble. Here's the reality, beloved. The gospel of Jesus Christ When we believe it, it spares us from eternal suffering. The worst thing that could ever happen to us, Jesus experienced for us. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. It it, it, it spares us from eternal suffering, not temporal trials. It spares us from eternal suffering, not temporal trials. Let me address the unbelievers in the room. Friends, I am glad that you are here. As you have lived life, I know that you have been through some things, that you yourself have suffered in some type of ways. 
experienced some sort of hardship. Now, I want to be insensitive to that because life is hard. But the reality is, friends, right now, there's something far worse coming your way. And it is the wrath of God because you have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And God in his love sent his son to take that wrath in place of sinners. And so friend, what I would encourage you is to flee the wrath to come by placing your hope and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is to be saved from judgment, and God does that through Jesus. And friend, know that if you were to place your faith in Jesus, God will also be with you in your temporal trials. He'll be for you in the midst of it. But the greatest thing, your greatest need right now is Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to place your trust in him this day. James tells us who are in Christ to not be surprised when trials come. Instead, to expect it. And he tells us how we are to respond. He says, counted a great joy. It's important to know that James is not being insensitive to one's suffering. He's not belittling it at all. He's not apathetic. Trials do come and it causes us to grieve and it should cause us to grieve. And Jesus himself, he's a compassionate Savior. He wipes tears. He comforts us in the midst of our trials. We can grieve knowing that suffering is not good, and yet we can still have joy in the midst of it because we know that God is sovereign over it, and he will use it for our good. What James here is encouraging is for us to look at it from a spiritual perspective, knowing that God is absolutely sovereign and he permits and purposes our trials to sanctify us. James is encouraging us to see our trials as an opportunity to grow more in Christ, and in that we rejoice. Look at verse 3. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is telling us that we are to be aware in how God uses the trials to grow us. Beloved, do you think like that when you experience trials? Is there an awareness that he is using it to test our faith to grow us? Now, it's important for us to know that the testing isn't to see if there is faith. Remember, James is writing to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The testing is to refine and purify our faith, to grow us in the faith. Think about gold, the element. Refineries, when they try to purify it, what they do is that they place the gold, this element, into a container that can withstand very high heat. And then they place that container in the fire. 
And what begins to happen is that the gold begins to melt. It's reliquified and begins to burn away all of the impurities. That the gold may be even more pure. God does this sanctifying work in our faith when we go through trials. As we're in the trial, he's working inwardly, removing the mess and developing us in godly ways to produce God-like qualities. So we're firmer in our faith, more steadfast. In his wisdom and providence, we grow in hardship. Think about the scripture reading, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, gets at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, gets at that. And here's the thing, God is well acquainted with us. He is omniscient. He knows us. He has made us a part of his flock. He knows us deeply and dearly. He's acquainted with our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He knows where we are, and he knows exactly where he's taking us. And he uses specific trials to grow us, to get us where he is taking us. The trials are not random, for God does nothing randomly. They're specific for us to grow us in specific ways. Y'all, I used to run track. Loved running track in high school, and no cap, I think I had like the greatest track coach, Coach Coach Greg Williams, like for real. And the practices were extremely difficult, extremely difficult. What Coach would do, Coach Williams, he would group us into specific groups based upon the race that you ran, whether you were sprint, sprinters would be in one group, quarter milers would be in another group, hurdlers would be in a group, half milers would be in a group, uh, long distance runners, milers would be in a group. So he would place us in these groups and he would give us specific workouts for each group. And he also knew how fast you was because he would give specific times based upon where you are in that group, based upon your speed. And so Mondays, will be our distant days. So we'll always run further than the event that we run on at the track meets on Mondays. And y'all, the times were fast. It was difficult. You couldn't slack off. Because if you didn't make that time, you did the rep again. He didn't play any games. And so all of us were very exhausted. And then Tuesdays, Tuesdays were called lactic acid days, what we would call LA days. And on Tuesdays, it's lactic acid because after the workout, your hamstrings are going to be so tight. You're going to be laid out. And, y'all, Tuesdays were the hardest days. We used to do something like back-to-back 300s where you would run a 300 at a fast time, and then you had like 10 seconds to get back to the line, and so you had to jog across the track. And then that second 300 was like five or six seconds faster than the first one. Everybody died on Tuesdays, figuratively speaking. I would throw up every Tuesday, laid out. We thought that coach couldn't stand us because how hard he worked us. But over time, we got faster. Here's the thing. Coach Williams knew where we were. And he put us through the fire to have us get faster. He wanted us to be hitting specific times at the end of the season so that we can qualify and compete for a state championship. 
Well, what does this have to do with the passage? Well, God is the spiritual track coach. He knows exactly where we are. He puts us and permits us to go through these trials that he may sanctify us and grow us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, he permits the trials not to get us, but to grow us. When we receive Jesus Christ by faith, God takes us exactly as we are. He doesn't command us to clean ourselves up before we trust in him. He takes us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And so he begins to sanctify us. He is committed to our sanctification so much so that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And the reality is, beloved, the more and more we love God, the more and more we want for ourselves the very thing that God wants for us. Our sanctification. Our growth in Christ. And as we have this perspective, we can begin to rejoice more in the trials. Are they hard? Absolutely. But we can still rejoice because we know what God is doing in us. And we want to look more and more like Jesus. The reality is, our love for Jesus Christ is so evident when we begin to rejoice in our trials. I was talking to my wife about this passage, and and she said something that was so profound that struck me. She said, it is through the trials. When we rejoice in the trials, it really shows that our joy is in the Lord himself and not in what he gives. And as Christians, we can rejoice in the fiery trials as hard as they are. In the midst of the world, falling down because we know that our citizenship is in another world. In the new heavens and a new earth. And so, beloved, as hard as trials are, how are you doing in rejoicing in them? In what ways do you need to reorient your thinking for it to align with more of what James is saying? That we may, will we grieve? Yes. But do we also think about, think about it from a spiritual perspective, seeing that, man, this is an opportunity for us to be more and more like Jesus. May we pray for one another in this. Pray for me in this, because this ain't always my first thought. I was convicted as I was studying this past. Lord, help me to rejoice more in the trials. Because it is an opportunity to grow in Christ. So may we rejoice, but may we also remain faithful. James goes in verse 4, he says, And let endurance have its full effect. This is the second exhortation that he gives. Tells us to not resist or rebuff God's invisible and spiritual work in us in our trials. The very thing that we are prone to do in our flesh. It's exhorting us to entrust ourselves to God and remain faithful to him while he is doing this spiritual work in us. The reality is we can impede on this sanctifying work. Well, how? Deliberate disobedience. When we experience a trial, begin to begin to disobey God, to find our refuge in sin and the world. 
to pursue prohibited pleasures as a means to numb us from the trials that we're experiencing. Another way that we can impede on this sanctifying work is to chunk the deuce to God and the covenant community until things get better. And what fruit would come from that? It only leads to one's demise. So how are we to let endurance have its full effect? Well, the answer is not, it's not mystical. It's not even complicated. In fact, it is quite simple. You ready for it? Remain faithful to God. Remain faithful to God. Well, what does that look like? Commit yourself to the ordinary means of grace. Being in God's word, prayer, the corporate worship, fellowship. When trials come, may we not be quick to close our Bibles, but be quick to open them and get ourselves in God's word. Remembering who God is, the promises that he has made, and the fact that he is for us in the midst of our suffering. When trials come, instead of our prayer lives vanishing, may it be all the more active. Praying fervently and more for God to give grace, for God to strengthen us, for God to help us. Instead of disappearing from the corporate gathering, may we prioritize it all the more. Knowing that it is through the corporate worship that we're being reminded of God and his promises and the gospel. And that the day is coming when Christ will return. Beloved, if we're going to remain faithful in trials, it will not be in isolation. It's in the context of the corporate covenant community. So what this means is instead of clearing our calendars so we can play golf and play video games all day, may we fill our calendars with time, scheduling time with one another. For the purpose of being encouraged, knowing that our souls need it. May we be all the more eager to open our homes to one another that we may bear our hearts before each other. That the saints may shoulder that burden, pray for us, and remind us of God's word. May we ask if we can go to each other's homes. Yo, can I come to your crib? Because I'm struggling right now. And I need your encouragement. Because I'm striving to remain faithful. And it is hard right now. This is normal life in the context of the covenant community. Beloved, it is through the ordinary means of grace that God, he renews our mind, that he strengthens our faith, he increases our joy, he bolsters our hope, and he lifts our gaze to God and his coming kingdom. And it helps us to endure while he is sanctifying us in the midst of the trial. In the trial, he is doing a work that you and I cannot see, and as we remain faithful, others will be able to see it. And the brothers and sisters in this church begin to call out evidence of God's sanctifying grace in your life. If we're going to remain faithful in the trials, beloved, and let God do his work, this thing should shape our prayer life. 
in such a way that we pray not just for God to deliver us from it, because that's a good prayer to pray. Well, may that not be the only prayer that we pray. May we begin to pray prayers like, Lord, help me to endure well as I await your deliverance. God, give me the grace to desire the purposes that you have set for this trial. Lord, let not my will but your will be done. Know that he is actively at work in our hearts and in our lives. May we actively be faithful, worshiping him, obeying him, and waiting on him. Knowing that our trials are temporary. Beloved, how are you doing in remaining faithful? How are you doing in encouraging the body to remain faithful in trials? In what ways do your efforts look like helping fellow brothers and sisters who we've covenanted with to remain faithful? When they admit that they're struggling, are you opening your home? Are you going to them? Are you texting them verses, giving them phone calls? Because God really can and he does use these things to strengthen our endurance to remain faithful. So may we remain faithful and encourage one another to do so. Third and finally, may we remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. Look at verses 3 and 4 once again. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James makes known God's purpose for the trial, and it is our growth, our maturity in Christ. He's getting at wholeness. Or we're growing in morality and integrity. He emphasizes it because the Greek words of mature and complete, they are so similar. He's emphasizing God's sanctifying work, what he does that we may grow all the more in Christ. The reality is there are areas of deficiency within us. And God in his wisdom uses trials to work spiritually, exposing our weaknesses and our immaturity in areas where we lack, not to condemn us, but to refine us, to mature us in those areas. James is making it abundantly clear that part of God's purpose in our trials is for us to grow in looking more and more like Jesus. We don't often think like that, but it takes effort for us to remember this because left to ourselves, we won't think like that. That's why we need the Word. We need to remember this because Satan will certainly whisper lies to our ears, saying, God ain't for you because if he was, he wouldn't do something like this. The world will begin to shout lies towards you saying, this is why there is no God. Even our very own thoughts 
we begin to assume the worst. Thinking that God doesn't love us because if he did, we wouldn't be in this trial. We can easily begin to assume that God is doing this to smite us. And this is why we need to be in the Word. Because the Scriptures remind us that we're not in this trial because God wants to smite us. How do we know? Because He smit Christ in our stead. Isaiah chapter 53, He was stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, you and I, we have been healed. It's because of Jesus' death on the cross, beloved, and God in his grace saving us that there is not one ounce of wrath reserved for us. Because Jesus Christ bore it all. The word reminds us that in the midst of our trials, God is not smiting us. He is sanctifying us. He is seeking to make us more and more holy. The very holy calling that he has given us, he is working to bring that into holy practice. And one of the things that he uses are trials. And in trials, we begin to experience more and more of God. To where we begin to draw near and he draws near to us. To where he sustains us, he comforts us, he strengthens us, he helps us. He is not distant, he couldn't be more present. And as he's refining us, beloved, we come to the other side of it and we are more in awe of God's grace, his love, his power, his provision. We see more and more that the one who we need continues to provide for he is faithful. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul prayed for the thorn in his side to be removed. Prayed for that repeatedly. And what did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul heard from the Lord and his disposition changed to where he said, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. How did he find out about God's gracious provision and power? It was through the trial. One theologian would say it this way, if your path had been smooth, you would have depended upon your own sure-footedness. But God roughened that path so that you have to take hold of his hand. So we begin to see God is the one who we need and God is the one who we have. And he purifies us, growing us. In the faith. You know, when you think about God's sanctifying purpose to mature us, think about a physical therapist. You know, their clients, they're ill or they're injured, and a physical therapist, they begin to do some real strenuous work to restore their client. And y'all, it is painful because they are focusing on the area of weakness. They're doing stretches, exercises, 
giving very painful massages to where you wouldn't even call that a massage. It's no joke. But when you come to the other side of it, the client is restored. The client is strengthened. And the Lord, in his grace and wisdom and power, he does very similar work in us. He's focusing on an area where we need to grow. And it's because we love Jesus, we should want to grow in likeness to Christ. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and to have fellowship in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul is like, I want to grow in Jesus. So much so, I'm willing to suffer like my Savior because I want to grow and be like him. 1 John chapter 3 says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him and we will see him as, it is, as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Beloved, we should want to grow in Christ. If you want to grow, part of that growth, part of the process is going to be through pain. But God meets us in it. God sanctifies us in it. God helps us in it. And he preserves us. And we continue to grow into maturity. This is his process. And he won't fail. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's sanctifying process is 100% effective. So as we endure the trials that we experience, may we trust God who's over our sanctifying process. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, you are sovereign, you care, and you work effectively in your people to mold us and make us more and more like Jesus. Father, may we not be surprised when trials come. May we grieve over the difficulty. And God, we do pray that you would help us to have, the, to have joy in the midst of it. We think about the work that you are doing and how you're going to make us look more and more like Jesus. May we not despise that. May we trust you, knowing that you are good and you are good to us, even in the trials. God, have your way in us that we may look more and more like our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.